Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Happy Palm Sunday, everyone. We did not rent a donkey. There are no palm leaves. Next week is Easter, it's exciting. But today is Palm Sunday. I don't typically tailor my messages around holidays, so you don't really get a Valentine's message. I don't really have a Palm Sunday message. We're deep in the weeds of Acts chapter 20 today, and so I wanna continue and pick it up there. And where we are uh, in Acts 20 is Uh, about to start the second leg of Paul's third missionary journey. Now, I wanna apologize, there were some storms that blew in this week uh, that knocked out some of the technology things here at the center, and that's why the screen is not working behind me. But even though the screen is not working, your imagination (laughs) can work. So I present to you some maps. (laughs) Now, Just follow me here, okay? I'm gonna give you some context and I'm gonna do it on this blank screen. But it's important for you to understand context where we're going. I posted these maps on our Slack channel um, so you can go to the Sunday gathering where I typically post the message after the service and you can look at those. It's cool if you wanna pull out your phone and follow along. I apologize for them getting posted out of order. I'll fix that afterwards. But Paul went on three missionary journeys and he devoted almost 10 years of his life to this mission. And what I wanna do is I wanna help you walk through geographically what Paul is doing and where he's going. Because by his third missionary journey, he's not going anywhere new. He's only visiting places he previously um, uh, planted churches at. So if you're just kind of using your imagination, right over here on this corner of the, (laughs) you thought I was kidding. This is Israel, all right? This is Turkey and this is Greece. That's all we're going with today, okay? Where Paul started was up north of Israel. His first missionary journey, if you remember the map, went here, here, over to Lystra and Derby, and then came back. So it's a small little triangle up here. The second journey he went on, he expanded. He started in the same place. He went over, went up, stopped at Troas. He's still in Turkey, but he's praying, Lord, where are we gonna go next? Because doors are closing and I don't see any opening. And all of a sudden he gets this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, please come over. Macedonia is in the region of Greece. So he crosses over, goes over here to this region. This is where he meets the people in Thessalonica and Berea. He talks with these people, he plants churches. He gets run out of town by the Jewish uh, people who don't like him being there. And so he goes down to Athens, which is down here. And that's where he preaches the sermon to the folks who weren't interested in listening. He preaches to these uh, Stoics, and he tries to teach the word of God in a contextualized way that helps them connect the dots and they weren't interested. So he leaves frustrated and goes just over a little bit to Corinth. Corinth is familiar because we've got two books in New Testament to this city, the Corinthians, first and second. He spends a year and a half in Corinth working with that church because frankly, they're a mess. That region was 
steeped in sexual idolatry and it had a huge impact on that church. And he worked in that region until he felt like things were solid and he left Corinth, crossed the ocean to Ephesus, spent just a few weeks in Ephesus and then went back down to Jerusalem and back up to Antioch. And then he picks up his third missionary journey which is the beginning of Acts 19 and that's what we read last week. Now Acts 19, what we read last week, he starts his journey in Antioch, he goes up and visits these churches and he goes to Ephesus and he stops. And he stops in Ephesus for almost three years. And while he's there, he's working with the people in the region, he plants a lot of the churches, he plants all of the seven churches that you read about in Revelation in that region of Turkey. He's working with the people, he's laboring, he's building relationships, he's, he's loving these people, they're loving him back, he's working all day long building tents. Then at lunchtime, we're told he goes to the hall of Tyrannus and he's teaching during lunchtime. And then at four o'clock when everybody goes back to work, he goes back to work. So he's working two shifts and he's teaching during the day. He is working himself to the bone because this is all that matters to Paul. And we're told that the Holy Spirit prompted him, I, I need to go to Rome. So he starts making plans for that. And right around that same time, there's this huge mob that forms because the city doesn't like that their identity is being stripped away because people are becoming Christians. And on the heels of that mob, Paul leaves Ephesus and decides, I'm gonna go visit those other churches that I planted just to the west of Troas. So he goes up, and this is where we're going today. He goes up, he revisits Thessalonica, Berea, he goes down to Athens, goes over to Corinth, now, I didn't forget, I forgot to mention this. While he was in Ephesus, word comes from some of his friends that things in Corinth aren't good. So while he's in Ephesus during that three-year period, he takes a little short trip to Corinth and then comes back over to Ephesus. While he's up here in Thessalonica and Berea on this third missionary journey, he writes 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And he references in 2nd Corinthians, this is the third time I'm coming to you, and it's not gonna be pretty. Well, he goes down and he visits them for the third time. And while he's down here in Corinth, he writes the book of Romans. And it's, uh, uh, the reason why I'm doing this whole exercise is to give context. You can go back and look at the maps later, but I want you to understand what was in his head while he's writing these books. If you read the book of Romans through the lens of him spending about eight months in Corinth, you start understanding the things that he's talking about, like in Romans 15 when he mentions that he's taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. See, he's referencing things in these letters that are happening in real time during this missionary journey and that's why this is all important. Because none of this stuff stands on its own. Paul was a real guy with real flesh and blood. He really breathed air. He really traveled these places. He really suffered and he really loved the people who lived in these cities. This isn't a fairy tale. This is real life. This actually happened. And sometimes when we read through these books, the epistles in the New Testament, the letters written by Paul, we disassociate the fact that this was a real guy who was really suffering, who really was working with these people and experiencing transformation in these lives. We just see it as kind of the standalone thing. And then the Acts, it's the standalone thing. Nothing in this book is standalone. Everything is threaded together for thousands and thousands of years because it's one God telling his story of redemption to get mankind back. That's what this is about. So once he's in Corinth, he decides it's time to start heading back. So 
<clears throat> he catches a plan for some Jews to kill him. So rather than just traveling over to Ephesus like he did last time, he tracks his way all the way back up and he revisits all these areas. He goes to Philippi, he goes to Troas. Something funny happens in Troas. We'll learn about that in a minute. And then he goes, he, he goes south of Ephesus. Ephesus is here. He goes out here to this town called Miletus and he gathers the elders in Ephesus together to have one kind of like a leadership summit. It's the last time he's gonna see them and he pours wisdom into them for the last time. And he says, this is what's most important. Now, as I was preparing for this message this week, um, something odd came to my attention. I quoted for probably the 100th time in the last month, Matthew 13, 44. And I don't know why, but just in random conversations with people, just it's this thing that the Holy Spirit keeps bringing to my memory, Matthew 13, 44. And so while I'm preparing for this message, I can't get that scripture out of my mind. So I feel like what the Holy Spirit wants us to do is I, want, I think he wants us to read Acts 20 with the lens of Matthew 13, 44. Let me read that to you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to it. Matthew 13, 44 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up and in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Now I've quoted that just in counseling or in conversations, because to me that verse, that's probably my favorite verse in the Bible, because to me that, that verse really frames out what this is all about. This process, this life of following Jesus it started because some point in your life, you lived assuming that you had a good handle on what was valuable in this life, on what was important, what was worth your time, what was worth your money, but then something happened. You heard that there was a treasure buried in this field, and you decided that that treasure in the field is more valuable than everything that you had stockpiled up until this point. And so spiritually, emotionally, mentally, you made a decision to liquidate everything in your life in order to get that one treasure that's more valuable than anything. But here's the question. What does the guy look like after he buys the field? We know he's in his joy he goes and does this. But what is the life of that person look like after he buys that field and gets that treasure? And I think that the answer to that question is found in the life of Paul. Now, not just Paul, I think that there's lots of people in the New Testament we can look at and say, you know, Peter, John's a great example of that. They sold everything because there was a treasure in a field that was more valuable than their life. That's why they never went back to fishing or their previous vocation or it's the reason why they never lived the way they did or it's the reason why their lives were transformed. But the question that I want to use as a lens to read Acts 20 today is, what does a life completely spent on Jesus look like? If you take a person like Paul and you say this guy treasures Jesus above all else, and the question that comes to us is, okay, then what does his life look like? What does he talk about when he's hanging out with his friends? What does he spend his time on? How does he handle crisis? When a, when a man or a woman treasures Jesus above all else and sells everything for that treasure in the field, what does their life look like? How do they problem solve? 
What's in, what kind of speech comes out of their mouth if they truly treasure Jesus? And that's what I want us to wrestle with today. Because I would, I would suspect that everyone in here would like to say, I treasure Jesus above all else. But if you put that statement and that life up against we, people that we know treasured Jesus above all else, I wonder how things pan out. So as we read Acts 20, we're gonna read about a man who treasured Jesus above all else and what his life looked like. And the underlying question as we read is, does my life look like this? Now what I'm not saying is you gotta sell everything and go be a missionary like Paul. Paul was very unique, but if you separate Jesus' words of a man who buys this treasure in a field from Paul, who was pretty unique, you still have the parable of the treasure in the field. Because all of us are men and women who decided that Jesus was infinitely more valuable than anything this world had to offer and our lives should look differently for it. Are you with me? Let's get to it. Acts chapter 20, we're gonna start in verse one. So he's still in Ephesus. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for his disciples after encouraging them. So he hung out with them a little bit, encouraged them in Ephesus. And he said farewell and he departed for Macedonia. So he headed back over to Philippi in the region that he had been on his second missionary journey. And when he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he went down to Greece. All right, so we're not told how long he stayed in Thessalonica and Berea and this area up in Macedonia. But what he's doing in those regions is encouraging the believers. He comes down to Greece, there's Athens down there. He spent three months. He goes over to Corinth. That's down there in the southern point of Greece. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he backtracked and went right back the way he came. Sopater the Berean, was with him, son of Phyrus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and of the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So he's not alone, he's traveling with a group of people that he has picked up along the way. So every time he goes to a town, he's identifying young men in that uh, church, in that region from Thessalonica, from Berea, and he's saying, I want you to travel with me. Now, what is he doing? Why is he asking these guys to travel with them? It's because these guys are carrying the offering back to Jerusalem that we'll mention in a minute. See, Paul knows that his character will be called into question everywhere he goes, so he doesn't want to touch the money. So he's asking young men from the churches that he visits, the Gentile churches, to carry the offering from their church with them and travel with him back to Jerusalem to present this offering to the church in Jerusalem that's suffering. And they went on ahead, they're waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Now, we see Paul leaving Ephesus, traveling through Macedonia, down to Greece, backtracking, and the question we have is what is he doing in these churches? We're told in verse one and in verse two, that he's encouraging the believers, 
And we know from Romans 15, which is a letter he wrote while he was down in, Ath- down in Greece in the Corinth area, that he's taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, like I just mentioned. What is that offering for? Why is he taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem? Because this is what you have. You've got the church in Jerusalem is almost 100% Jewish. And all these people in this church in Jerusalem have grown up in Jerusalem around all this Jewish culture, and they've got their own businesses in Jerusalem. Joseph owns this pita shop. Everybody knows this pita shop. Everybody loves Joseph's pita. It's good stuff. But Joseph gets saved and baptized, and his family becomes Christians, and all of a sudden, people judge you if you buy pita from Joseph because he's a Christian. He's a follower of the way. And all of a sudden, this starts happening to a couple other businesses. And then eventually, no one wants to do business with anybody in Jerusalem if they're associated with the Christian church. And the doors start shutting. And family businesses that have been opened for years close because the family is now associated with Jesus and the church. So you've got Jews who are going through a famine They're also having to shut their businesses and they're suffering, they're poor, they're weak, and they're in Jerusalem. And Paul is now traveling to all these other regions and he's planting almost 100% exclusively Gentile churches. Because when he goes into a region, he starts out in the synagogue, but they run him out within a week. There are some Jews in some of the regions, like in Berea, that They get saved and they join the church, but for the most part, these are all Gentile churches. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, if there's anything that I could bring to the church in Jerusalem that would meet their needs, it's literal finances, it's money, because they're all poor right now. And they've got nothing and they've lost their lives because they're following Jesus. So we're gonna meet their actual need. But this also says something even greater because Isaiah talked right around Isaiah 66. He prophesied about this time that the wealth of the Gentile nations would start funneling back to Israel. And so Paul is seeing, we can tangibly fulfill scripture here. We can meet somebody's need and we can also preach a message that's louder than anybody even imagined. And I can communicate to the people in the Jewish church that these Gentiles are now part of them. They're brothers and sisters with you. And look how much they care for you. They sent delegates from their own churches down here to Jerusalem to do nothing more than to just hand you a check to say, we're praying for you and we wanna meet your needs. That's huge. And it was one of the main missions of Paul on this third missionary journey. He wants to gather support from these churches to help the church in Jerusalem to meet their needs, but also to preach the gospel of unity. That there are not two kinds of Christians. There are only children of God, that's it. There's no class system in God's economy. So if we look at this through the lens of what we started with, what does it mean for a man to treasure Jesus above all else. What does that kind of man do with his time? A man that treasures Jesus above all else spends his time and money on others. He encourages, he rages support, he identifies needs, and he does everything he can to meet those needs. But he doesn't stop there, because in 2 Corinthians 8, 
1 through 14, while he's collecting this offering before he gets to Corinth, he mentions, hey, uh, the churches in Thessalonica and Berea, they're giving a lot and we want you to join in on this too. What does a man who treasures Jesus above all else do with his time? He gives of his time. He sacrifices of his time for others, but he also encourages his friends to do the same thing. He challenges the people who he loves and that are the closest to him to, man, follow me as I follow Christ. There's a need over here. Who's with me to meet this need? Let's get this done. I'm all on board. I'm not asking you to do something that I wouldn't first do. Follow me. Let's meet this need. But he's also valuing unity. And I think that as we look at the life of Paul as a man who treasures Jesus above all else, we start learning so much about what the guy looks like after he bought the field. So you're telling me the guy is not just filled with joy because now he's got something for himself. Now you're telling me that this guy who's filled with joy now wants to share that thing with everybody else? That's exactly what I'm saying. And he doesn't just share that thing with everybody else. He encourages people that are closest to him to start sharing that thing with everybody else. He surrounds himself with men and women who also value the same thing, that don't value opposite things and challenge his value system and try to shift it. He surrounds himself with people who have the same value system so the mission can build and build and build. That's what a man who treasures Jesus does with his time. Let's go to verse seven. So they're at Troas, and when he gets there on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, all right, Luke's back in the picture now, that's why he says we. So it's the first day of the week, what's that? That's Sunday. It's church day. They've gathered together in this house church, and they're gonna have service. So they're gathering together in this house church, They're breaking bread and Paul is talking with them, intending to depart on the next day and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So he started talking in the morning and he didn't stop all day. Church never ended. I imagine people's like, oh, it's lunchtime. Paul, keep going, we've got sandwiches. And they're just like passing out like, is there any record of people who's like, man, I gotta go? No, because this entire house is filled with people who all value the same thing. And they know this is the last time they're gonna see Paul. And so you get a group of people who are all hungry together for Jesus. And Paul starts teaching, he's just like, man, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. We're hurting and we need truth. We need encouragement, don't stop. So he doesn't stop. He keeps talking and he keeps talking. Well, verse eight, it says, it starts getting way into the night and there were lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. So the light is kind of dim, people are sleepy. And there's a young man named Eutychus. Oh man, poor Eutychus. To get your name in the Bible for what's about to happen. (laughs) First guy to fall asleep in church. There's a young man named Eutychus, and he's sitting at the window, and I can imagine this young man, he's like, I just want to be here. I do want to be here, but I'm so sleepy. And he's sitting against the window, first mistake. That's how we know he's a young man. (laughs) He's not making wise decisions. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul continued to talk still longer and being overcome with sleep. He fell asleep and fell out of the window 
and it was a third story building and he was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, picked him up by his arms and said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a while longer until daybreak. <laughs> he went right back to teaching. <laughs> verse, 20, verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and they were not a little comforted, which is the Bible way of saying they were a lot comforted. Now, if you're comparing notes and you're doing some Bible sleuthing, you could probably connect the dots to Paul's letter to 2 Timothy 4.13 when he references going to get his cloak from the house of Carpus that he left in Troas. So this is probably the home of this guy named Carpus. Paul is preaching on a Sunday morning, teaching well into the night, and a young man fell asleep, fell out the window, and died. Now, this seems kind of comical but it's only comical because we know what happens next. We know that Paul goes down and raises the kid back to life. But I want you to imagine just for a moment the crisis that is involved in this moment. Because it's easy to just read our perspective and our understanding of the end of the story into the story and not be shocked by what's happening. But the truth is that Eutychus was somebody's son. Some mama lost a boy that morning now, I don't know if his mom was there or if she told him, don't go to that thing. And he went anyway, and he died. I want you to imagine the crisis and the alarm that would transpire if somebody this morning breathed their last in the middle of a sermon. That tension, that crisis, that's what was happening at this moment. We read it, it was just like, oh, this kid fell asleep. <laughs> and then he died, <laughs> oh my goodness. And then Paul brought him back to life. Well, that is the whole story. And they were all comforted by it at the end, but I want you to imagine what's happening in the middle of this. The shock, the horror, the gasps, the moment that kid fell out the window. And people are freaking out. What does a man who treasures Jesus above everything do in a moment of crisis? He has compassion. He gets up, he walks down to the street, he grabs Eutychus by the arm, he picks him up, and he brings him back to life. What does a man who treasures Jesus do in the middle of crisis? He doesn't first start showing everybody in the room how their decisions were wrong and led to this crisis. He doesn't talk more than he listens. His immediate response is compassion. He's moved with compassion. He goes down to the boy. He prays for the young man and he raises him back up. He offers compassion to Eutychus in the form of God's power. And then he points everybody back to Jesus by going back up and getting right back into teaching the word. Now, why is this important? because I want us to start drawing the lines from the point that you got saved and said, I treasure Jesus more than everything. I want you to start drawing the lines into your calendar and your business and your bank account and your emotions and your mouth and your thought life. Because there is a connection, you can't 
Treasure him above everything and keep talking the way that you're talking and thinking about the things that you're thinking about and treasuring in your heart when you think nobody knows the things that Jesus died for. So what is a man filled with Jesus and, and, and treasures him above all else, what does he do in the midst of crisis? He's moved with compassion because that's what Jesus was moved with. He had compassion on the people even when they made dumb decisions like fall asleep in a windowsill. This isn't a teaching moment where Paul's like, all right, so Eutychus, you see what you did wrong there? So next time, no, there's just, man, poor kid, I get it. He had compassion, and I wonder if we exercise the same level of compassion if we truly treasure the same Jesus that Paul treasured. So let's keep going because we want to find out more. What is this, what is this treasuring do to our lives? Verse 13 says, they, Going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So now we're going to do a little geography. We're going to jump down from Troas all the way down to Miletus. So he went from Assos, took him on board, went down. We're in verse 15, sailing from there. He came opposite of Chios. The next day, he touched Samos. The next day after that, he went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia because those Ephesians sure know how to keep you longer than you want to stay. So he bypassed the whole city, didn't go visit the church, went to a town just south on the coast and invited the leaders to come see him because he wanted to make it back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Verse 17, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the leaders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, He said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I sent foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. What did you do, Paul? I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he arrives in Miletus, he asks the Ephesians to come down and he spends time with his friends. What does a man who treasures Jesus above all else talk about with his friends? He talks about serving people with humility He talks about not being afraid of tears and trials. Man, that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a lot of guys who are afraid of tears, who are afraid of trials, that go out of their way to do everything they can to avoid tears and trials. And here we find a man who treasures Jesus above all else, talking about his tears and his trials. And talking about living a life of humility, which is the opposite of what the world is trying to sell men today. Oh, you gotta be type A, you gotta be top dog. Everyone's gotta know your name. You gotta be the most successful. Paul's going out of his way saying, no, no, I'm getting as low as I can. John is saying, I must decrease so he can increase. I don't want you seeing me. 
I want you seeing Jesus. If you see me, I'm not doing my job. If you see me, I'm in the way. This is what guys who treasure Jesus talk about. And it's not just reserved for men, it's reserved for ladies too. Ladies who treasure Jesus above all else when they gather together with other ladies don't talk about other ladies. They talk about humility, living with it. They talk about embracing Jesus in the tears and the trials. They talk about not shrinking back when things get tough, but teaching and talking and sharing Jesus in public and private. And both are important. Because some of us are convinced that it's really only important to talk about Jesus in public, but he never gets mentioned in our home. Or we only talk about him home, but we don't ever mention him out in public. The man who treasured Jesus above all else is teaching us that a life that sold everything for the field can't stop talking about the treasure they found in the field. It's the punchline to every joke. It's the end of every sentence. It is somehow incorporated into everything we talk about because we can't avoid the fact that we were once lost and now we're found. We were once wandering around in darkness and now we've been found and adopted into this marvelous family of light. We can't stop talking about it because we weren't, we, 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 we didn't deserve it. When he found me, I wasn't worth being found. I was not worth dying for. We can't stop talking about it, but there's more. He goes on in verse 22. He continues talking to these guys. This is now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm constrained by the Spirit. I'm compelled. I'm shackled. I, I, I am, I am I'm pushed. I'm motivated by the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the fact that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city I'm going to be imprisoned and afflictions await me. So if I had to guess, probably what's coming my way. But you know what? I don't account my life of any value. Not nor as precious to myself. I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among you whom I've gone out proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. This is the last sermon I'm gonna be able to preach in person. Therefore, I testify this day, guys, I'm innocent of the blood of all. I've done everything I can to live innocent. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. That's interesting, huh? Pay careful attention to yourselves first and then the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and they're not gonna spare the flock. False teachers are gonna come in and talk about all kinds of nonsense and they're gonna do everything they can to pull you away. And from among you, even from your own group, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Here's something else that I didn't do. I didn't covet anybody's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said to us, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all and they embraced Paul and kissed him and being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. They accompanied him back to the ship. So what does a man who treasures Jesus above all else talk about with his friends? He talks about not valuing his life too precious. He talks about and lives in a way that his life is not more important than someone else's. And he doesn't, he doesn't arrange his affairs in such a way where the world watching his life would think this guy thinks more highly of himself than he should. He talks about with his friends and he encourages his friends that we should all be living a life that isn't just too precious. We should all be living a life where we are not afraid to take risks for Jesus. Not risks for risks sake, but risks for Jesus. Because we trust at the end of the day, he's got us and he's caring for us. What else, what else does he talk about? He talks about living a life that's innocent. I imagine that's probably innocent of debts, innocent of guilt, innocent of wrongdoing. He's arranging his life in a way where not one person in the entire town can say something bad about him unless they make it up. That's the kind of life that a man or a woman who treasures Jesus above all else lives. They live innocent. No one can, like no accusation can stick because they're not considering their life that precious. You don't need to go out of your way to do something special for me because I'm a nobody. He talks with his friends about paying careful attention to your own life and to the church. Are you close enough to people in the church that you actually know what's happening in their life? Is anyone in the church close enough to you that, you, that they know what's happening in your life? People that treasure Jesus treasure the things that he treasured and he treasured his family being close together. That's why he spent three years living with a group of guys. He talks about living alert, not being drunk on the addictions of the flesh, not being so clouded in your mind that you can't think straight. He talks about not coveting somebody else's silver or gold or apparel. He talks about living in such a way that you are content with exactly what God has given you, exactly when and where he's given it to you and not trying to live beyond that. He talks about working hard and helping the weak, not living on a pedestal, not trying to arrange your life that people say, I gotta be that person if I'm gonna be successful. If my marriage is gonna work, my husband's gotta be more like that guy or my wife has to be more like that woman. 
There's no place for that in the life of a person who sold everything to buy the field because that's one of the things that you sold. The previous image, the previous desires, the previous temptations to want something that isn't yours, you sold that. So it has no place because you've got a new field. You've liquidated everything for this one thing. This is worth more than any regret that you can hold hold on to. And then, the very end, I love this. Verse 36, he's gathered together with his friends and he prayed, what does a man who treasures Jesus above all do with his time and his friends? He prays with his friends. He's not too nervous to pray with his friends. He's not too embarrassed to ask for prayer, to initiate prayer, to say, let's pray together. Now in verse 20, Acts 20, 20, he started this with talking about not shrinking back. But if you back up to verse 18, he, he says, this is how I lived. He, says, he sets up this entire thing by saying, I didn't shrink back. I didn't count my life as too precious. I'm living innocent. I'm being careful. I'm encouraging you to be alert. I didn't cover anybody. He started all this with saying, This is how I lived among you. So this entire chapter is showing us how a man who treasured Jesus lived among other men and women. So the question before us today is this, is is this how we live? Is this how we spend our time? Is this how we handle a crisis? Is this how we talk with our closest friends? I said at the very beginning of the message and I want to reiterate it right now that now is the point where the rebuttal in your heart would be, yeah, but he is Paul. <laughs> like this is Paul. Like we're talking about Paul. So I don't know if we can use like Paul's life to dissect what I'm doing in my life because he's Paul. Let's go back to Matthew 14. The kingdom of God is like a treasure. It's buried in this field and the person who found it went and sold everything to get that field. That doesn't have anything to do with Paul. Paul is simply our example of what it looks like for a man to do that act. And what I'm saying today to us is if you have done that act, if you have forsaken everything of value, sold it, walked away from it in order to get the treasure in the field which is Jesus, the pearl of great value, If that's what you've done, what's just beyond that? What way are you living that reflects your new value system? Are you living like a person who treasures Jesus above all else, or are you living like a person who's trying to manage two mortgages? Are you still making payments on your old field while also trying to make payments on this new field, you will go bankrupt. You can't afford both. You either let go of your old value system and let this new one transform you or you keep on holding to your old value system and see how much farther it digs you into a hole. But you can't have both. But the good news is that if you do make the decision 
to look at a life like Paul, to examine that parable in Matthew 14 and say, that's what I want. Then your life just on the other side of signing that big stack of documents so that you now own that field, your life just beyond that, it's unlike anything you could possibly imagine. There is more peace, there is more joy, there is more rest, there is more humility, there is less guilt, there is less fear than anything. You spend 10 Sundays thinking the best your life could possibly be, the most rest you could have, the most satisfied in your soul, and I promise it will not even come close to what eternity will look like if you have treasured Jesus above all else. This is what is being offered to us today. To keep on holding on or to grab hold of this new thing that will change your life and just beyond that is truly a changed life. Can you treasure Jesus above all else and let go of the things that you previously valued? If so, you have just won the lottery. You have just inherited something that is more valuable than anything in the world. And I want that for you today. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.